0: The Moviegoer's Guide to the Future, based on the book Films from the Future, The Technology and Morality of Sci-Fi Movies, and read by the author Andrew Maynard. That's me, by the way. Chapter 5. Limitless. Back in 2009, just as we were about to tip over into the next decade, I set out to take stock of some of the more interesting and unusually emerging technologies on the horizon. The short article that ended up on the blog 2020 Science lists 10 technology trends I thought were worth watching over the next 10 years, and at number 9 was nootropics. Even then, these so-called smart drugs were being used quite widely by people wanting to give their brains a boost. And from my research, it seemed like this was a technology that was only going to get bigger. I had no idea just how big, though. Nearly 10 years later, Googling cognitive enhancers returns a flood of companies selling smart drugs, people giving advice on brain-improving substances, cognitive enhancer dosing regimes using a plethora of ingredients, how-to guides on hacking your brain, and a regular stream of news articles on the latest substance-enhanced mind hacks. Back in 2009, it was off-label uses of substances like Modifinal, Adderall and Ritalin that were all the rage. These days, It's a whole pharmacopoeia of substances and stacks or formulations designed to give you a legal or at least a not-too-illegal edge. Underpinning this trend, there's an almost unquestioned assumption that having a better memory and being able to think faster and more clearly are important if you want to be successful. Things are less clear, though, when it comes to the potential trade-offs that these substances come with. Mess with your body's chemistry, and there's usually a price to pay somewhere down the line. But things are more complex when it comes to social trade-offs. What do we gain and lose as a society if a growing number of people start to chemically enhance themselves? And if we're collectively going to go down this path, how can we navigate our way to using increasingly powerful cognitive enhancements responsibly? The movie Limitless provides an intriguing gateway into exploring the future of brain-enhancing drugs. It's smart, pun intended, witty, and at the end of the day, relatively ambivalent about the ethics of chemical cognitive enhancement. The film revolves around struggling author Eddie Mora, played by Bradley Cooper. Eddie's a mess. He can't write, he's not looking after himself, and his girlfriend's just left him. But just as he hits rock bottom, he runs across his former brother-in-law, Vernon, played by Johnny Whitworth. Vernon offers Eddie a new experimental drug, NZT48, which he claims is in human trials and is FDA-approved, though he doesn't say for what. Eddie, having nothing to lose at this point, pops the pill, and the effects are dramatic. Within a matter of seconds, he finds himself thinking faster and more clearly. His memory recall improves dramatically. He can not only absorb more information faster, he can also make better use of what he knows than ever before. And with this, his life dramatically clicks into focus. On NZT, No Hoper Eddie becomes suave, smart, Organized and interesting, enhanced Eddie. The trouble is, he only has one pill, so the next day he's back at Vernon's, who it turns out has problems of his own, namely some very powerful people who want to get their hands on his supply of NZT. Keeping the dramatic tension moving along at a pill popping pace, Vernon is murdered, Eddie finds and removes his stash of NZT, he starts taking the pills at an increasing rate, and Boom! He's transformed from a failing writer into someone with limitless potential. But there's a problem. A few of them, as it turns out. After the sheer exuberance of being so together wears off, Enhanced Eddie hatches a super smart plan to make a buckload of cash through day trading, cashing in on his chemically enhanced intelligence. Using his enhanced memory and his newfound ability to rapidly make sense of stock market patterns and fluctuations, he works out how he can trounce more seasoned traders and make a fortune. But this isn't simply because he wants to be wealthy. With his supercharged brain, Eddie begins to see a way forward to achieving his dreams of being successful. And here he realizes that money, and lots of it, is the lever he needs to achieve his success. Perhaps showing a modicum of overconfidence, Eddie borrows a wad of cash from a local thug played by Andrew Howard to kickstart his day trading scheme, and begins to make money hand over fist while staying several steps ahead of a growing storm of hurt behind him. Then the blackouts begin. As it turns out, there's no such thing as a free lunch, even in the world of designer drugs, and this particular wonder drug comes with a steep price. Eddie begins to lose track of where he's been and what he's been doing. And it looks like he might have been involved in a murder in one of his blank patches. On top of that, he's running out of NZT. NZT, it turns out, has some rather unpleasant side effects. Use too much and you begin to blank out. Come off it too fast and you get sick and die. Wean yourself off slowly and you lose your ability to focus. There's no easy win here once you're hooked. As all of this is playing out, Eddie is brokering the deal of a lifetime with corporate kingpin Carl Van Loon, played by Robert De Niro. He's also trying to stay clear of his loan shark, whom Eddie inadvertently introduced to NZT, and who is now eager for more. And he's being chased down by a mysterious stranger who, you've guessed it, is also after his supply of NZT. Following a succession of increasingly tense scenes, Enhanced Eddie eliminates the Lone Shark and his lackeys, finishes his novel, Easy When You're Smart Pilled Up, and gets back with his girlfriend, played by Abby Cornish. He also runs for a seat in the Senate and begins to entertain the idea of running for president. And as he gets his act together, he claims he's ironed out the kinks in NZT's formulation. At the end of the movie it seems that Eddie's version of NZT has, in fact, made his potential near-limitless. Limitless Limitless doesn't shy away from tackling the risks of cognition-enhancing drugs, but neither does it suggest that their use is inappropriate. Rather, it challenges viewers to think about the pros and cons. Under the surface, though, there are more subtle narratives around the value of intelligence and the meaning of success, as well as a surprisingly sophisticated exploration of the ethics of cognitive enhancement. Intelligence is important. At least that's what we're led to believe. From the moment we're born, and sometimes before this, if your parents subjected you to educational stimuli in the womb, there is a deep assumption that smarter is better. Educational aids, special schools, gifted and talented programs, cognitive development regimes, tests, grades, certificates, degrees, achievements, prizes, we're conditioned to believe that from day zero, the way to succeed in life is to be smart. From an evolutionary perspective, this isn't too surprising. Our particular human brand of intelligence is what differentiates us from our fellow species, including our ability to remember, learn, think and problem solve. It's what led to Homo sapiens forming powerful social groups, learning to farm plants and animals, harnessing water, coal and electricity, developing synthetic chemicals, creating cyberspace, exploring real space, growing enough food to feed a hungry and expanding world and plenty more besides. Our history seems to suggest that the secret of our success is indeed our smarts. So it's perhaps natural to think that the pathway to more success is even more intelligence, wherever and however we can find it. And when our evolutionary smarts run out of steam, or we feel we are genetically or socially short-changed, artificially enhanced intelligence begins to look pretty attractive. Of course we enhance our intelligence through artificial means all the time. It's part of the reason why we're so phenomenally successful as a species. As soon as I googled cognitive enhancers while researching this chapter, I tapped into an artificial aid to supplement my less-than-adequate memory and intellect. Our technology already makes us smarter than our biological brains and bodies allow, and this has been integral to how we've survived and grown as a species. We've evolved the ability to develop tools and use technologies that vastly amplify our body's innate capabilities. You just need to think about the complex technologies we weave through our lives every day to realize how stupendously powerful is this ability to not only imagine vastly different futures, but to use our intellect to create them. So why not use this intellect to enhance the very source of our intelligence, the human brain? If we can do everything we've achieved so far as a species through using £3 per person of unenhanced grey matter, imagine what would be possible with an artificially supercharged set of neurons. This is such a no-brainer that brain hacking is now big business. We've been sold the message through intensive marketing that being smarter than others will give us an advantage, and that we can get smarter through everything from playing brain games to doing brain exercises – and, of course, consuming cognition enhancing drugs. Peak Performance is a San Francisco based meetup organized by the entrepreneur George Berg. This eclectic group of individuals gets together regularly to explore ways of improving their body's performance, including, but certainly not limited to, the use of smart drugs. What makes Burke especially interesting is his advocacy for taking cognitive enhancers to keep ahead of the game. In a June 2017 article in the Washington Post, Burke acknowledges it's not like every tech worker in Silicon Valley is taking nootropics to get ahead. It's the few who are getting ahead who are using supplements to do that. Burke takes a daily cocktail of vitamins, minerals, research pharmaceuticals, and a touch of the psychedelic drug LSD. He claims it gets his brain operating at a level that improves his memory, attention, creativity, and motivation. Who wouldn't want this? Somewhat ironically, as I'm writing this, I'm fighting against brain fog brought on by burning the candle at both ends while fighting off some insidious virus. As a result, there's a fog-addled part of my brain that can see the attraction of an intelligence-enhancing pill. Why not order a cocktail or two of these smart meds, maybe with a sprinkle of LSD to clear away the cobwebs? Why not be the writer genius I could be at the pop of a pill, rather than the hack I suspect I am? Why not use a chemical aid to access those elusive memories and ideas that are teasing me from behind the wisps of dullness? What's to stop me trouncing the competition as brain-enhanced, brain-hacked Andrew? Surely Amazon Prime can deliver the appropriate cocktail before I've struggled my way through the next paragraph. But what would the downsides be? More to the point, and thinking beyond my own selfish needs, what are the social and ethical pros and cons of taking substances to boost brain performance? This takes us right back to the questions raised by the movie Limitless – But first, it's worth taking a deeper dive into the world of smart drugs and nootropics. In 2004, the academic and medical doctor Anjan Chatterjee wrote a review of what he termed cosmetic neurology. He was far from the first person to write about the emergence and ethics of cognitive enhancers, but the piece caught my attention because of its unusual title. Chatterjee's title has its roots in cosmetic surgery, an area fraught with medical angst as surgeons weigh up the pros and cons of desirable but physiologically unnecessary surgical interventions. Through the article, Chatterjee grapples with similar challenges as he weighs the benefits and downsides of treatments that don't cure disease but rather extend abilities. I'm not sure the term cosmetic neurology works. Cosmetic has an air of frivolity about it that is far removed from the issues Chatterjee is grappling with here. These include the use of substances to compensate for perceived deficiencies in human performance, such as the ability of pilots to remain alert and perform at their best. In the article, Chatterjee explores a growing number of pharmaceuticals that are known to affect the brain's operation in ways that can improve aspects of performance, including memory and concentration. And while he struggles with the ethics of cognitive enhancers, he wonders whether a better brain may one day be seen as an inalienable right. It could be argued, of course, that this has already happened in a world that's caffeine fueled by Starbucks, Dunkin' Donuts, Tim Hortons, and numerous other retail chains offering over-the-counter mental stimulants. For as long as people have known that some substances affect the brain, they've been finding ways to make use of these effects, and caffeine is an obvious poster child here. Take the 19th century French writer Honoré de Balzac, for instance. He was well-known for a prolific, coffee habit writing with rather obvious self-awareness that after drinking the substance and I quote here the cavalry of metaphor deplores with a magnificent gallop the artillery of logic rushes up with clattering wagons and cartridges on imagination's order sharpshooters sight and fire in fact reading his work it's hard to avoid wondering just how caffeinated up he was although caffeine in the form of tea and coffee is deeply socially normalised these days, there's a growing market for high-dosage shots to keep the brain alert. Visiting our on-campus one-stop store, there's a whole array of caffeine-enriched energy drinks and shots that students, and presumably faculty, can use to keep their brains alert. But these are just the visible tip of the iceberg of smart drugs being used on educational campuses the world over. For a number of years now, students in particular have been using substances like Adderall, Ritalin, and Provigil to give their brains a boost. These are all regulated substances that are designed for purposes other than getting through college or finishing the latest class assignment. But that isn't stopping what is purportedly a thriving black market in pharmaceutical smart pills. Adderall is intended for use in treating conditions like Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder or ADHD and narcolepsy. But there's a perception that it also increases memory performance and concentration in healthy adults. Ritalin is another drug used to treat ADHD that is also used off-label for memory and concentration boosts. Provigil, or Modafinal, on the other hand, is aimed at specifically treating sleep disorders and is used off-label to increase wakefulness and counter-fatigue by otherwise healthy adults. It's also used by the military in a number of countries to keep soldiers alert and has even reportedly been used by astronauts to stave off fatigue. These and other prescription drugs show measurable effects on concentration and wakefulness in some studies. But their precise impact on performance often depends on who uses them, how they use them, and what they use them for. And in most cases, there are trade-offs. These may take the form of unwanted short-term side effects and inadequate performance boosts. In some instances, there may actually be long-term impacts on cognitive performance, although the research here is patchy. Yet despite this, there's been a steady stream of news articles over the past few years suggesting frequent use among students and professionals in jobs where being smart matters. That said it's surprisingly tough to get a hard fix on how prevalent this behaviour is. A number of studies suggest that up to 50% of students in various countries are using some form of artificial means to increase concentration and performance, but these include caffeine-based drinks and tobacco. The number of using off-label drugs like Motorfinal are just a few percent in many of these studies. Despite the published data, though, it's not uncommon to come across occasional use amongst students. A few years ago, for instance, I was discussing smart drugs as part of a project with a group of colleagues. At one point, we turned to our student research assistant, who was someone I don't know, and asked whether her peers really were using these substances. She sheepishly reached into her bag and brought out a small pill. Just for when I need it, she said. It's not just students, though. I regularly come across rumours of faculty members and researchers occasionally using artificial aids to finish a grant proposal or to put an academic publication to bed. In 2008, Barbara Sahakian and Sharon Morin-Zamir published the delightfully titled commentary Professor's Little Helper in the journal Nature. In their piece, they noted that, quoting, in academia, We know that a number of our scientific colleagues in the United States and the United Kingdom already use Modafinal to counteract the effects of jet lag, to enhance productivity or mental energy, or to deal with demanding and important intellectual challenges. The article prompted Nature to conduct a straw poll of its readers. One in five of the survey's respondents admitted to using Ritalin, Modafinal, or beta blockers to aid their focus, concentration, or memory. Of course, one downside of this academic brain hacking is that none of these substances are risk-free. Making the decision to use one of these professor's little helpers to get ahead of your peers requires some careful balancing of short-term gains against potential downsides. These could include headaches, diarrhea, agitation, sleeplessness, odd behaviour, hair loss and the need for increasing doses to get the same effect. Because the side effects of off-label prescription drugs aren't widely tracked, it's hard to tell just how safe or otherwise their use is, although the indications are that moderate or occasional use isn't likely to lead to serious or lasting problems. But this uncertainty has led to experimentation around less restricted and often less studied substances in the quest for the perfect cognitive enhancer, the one that boosts your brain's abilities without any unwanted downsides. In 1973, the Romanian researcher and medical doctor Cornelius Gheergi published an article on a new drug called piracetum. What was unusual about piracetum was its seeming inertness compared to other pharmaceutical drugs. According to Gheergi, even at high doses it showed, and i quote, No sedation, no tranquilization, no stimulation, no interference with synaptic transmitters, no acute or long-term toxicity. No cortical or subcortical EEG changes, no interference with limbic after-discharges, reticular, sensory, or direct arousal threshold, and no changes of the cardiovascular, respiratory, gastrointestinal systems. In other words, it did pretty much nothing, except that, based on Georgi's research, it protected against severe brain hypoxia, or oxygen deprivation, and it enhanced memory and learning. To Georgi, piracetam was a unique class of drug that enhanced the integration of evolutionarily important brain functions like memory and learning without obviously deleterious side effects. He considered this class of drug so unique that he coined a new term for it from the root nuos, referring to mind, and "tropine," meaning towards. And so, nootropics was born. Since then, the term nootropics has been used to cover pretty much all types of substances that purportedly enhance brain function. But increasingly, purists are going back to Georgie's roots and using it to describe cocktails and stacks that improve function without unwanted side effects. To them, this means discounting those off-label prescription drugs. Pyrocytum remains a popular nootropic, and it's readily purchased in many countries, although it occupies a legal grey zone in some. And there's a growing body of research on its use and effects. A quick search on Google Scholar pulls up over 19,000 papers and articles on the substance. That said, the benefits to healthy adults remain ambiguous. But this doesn't stop people from using it to, in the words of one supplier, give you a serious cognitive edge without putting your health at risk. This is just the tip of the cognitive enhancement iceberg though. Increasingly, advocates like George Burke and others are experimenting with esoteric cocktails of substances to boost their brains and to tap into what they believe is their full potential. And it's not hard to see why. If your livelihood and ambitions depend on your ability to squeeze every last ounce of performance out of your brain, why wouldn't you try everything possible to make sure you were running at peak performance? This, of course, assumes that most people aren't running on all four cylinders in the smarts department in the first place, and that our brains had the capacity to work better than they do. In Limitless, the plot depends on the old myth that we're using only 10-20% to 20% of our brains, and that chemical enhancement can unlock the rest of our presumably unused potential. Sadly, while this works as a plot device, it's pure scientific bunkum. Despite the tenacity of the myth, research has shown that we use every last ounce of our brain. Admittedly, we still don't know precisely what parts of it are doing at any given time, or why they do what they do. But we do know that we don't typically have unused cognitive capacity just waiting to be jump-started. What's more interesting, and potentially more relevant, is the idea that's developed in Limitless that we go chemically enhance memory storage and recall, and our ability to make sense of the seemingly disparate pieces of information we all have tucked away in our heads. Certainly... I struggle with memory and recall, and my ability to make sense of and act on new information suffers as a result. It's easy for me to fantasise about how much smarter I'd be if everything I've experienced or learnt was always at my fingertips, just waiting to be combined together in a flash of genius. And while I may be using 100% of my brain, it doesn't take much to convince me that 90% of this is at times a dysfunctional mess. To someone who depends on their brain for their living, I must confess that the idea of clearing the fog and making things work better is attractive. Surely with better recall and data processing, I'd be better at what I do, and maybe I would. But there's a danger to thinking of our brains as computers, which of course is where these ideas of memory and data processing come from. It's tempting to conflate what's important in our heads with what we think is important on our computers, including more memory, faster recall, and more efficient data processing. If we follow this pathway, we run the risk of sacrificing possibly essential parts of ourselves for what we mistakenly think of as important. Unfortunately... We don't know enough about the human brain yet to understand the benefits and dangers of how we think about human intelligence and success, although we do know that comparing what's in our head to a computer is probably a bad idea. More than this, though, we also have a tendency to conflate achievements that we associate with intelligence with success. But what if we're using the wrong measures of success here? What if our urge to make more money, to publish more papers, or to be famous leads us to ultimately risking what makes us who we are? And does this even matter? To many people, I suspect it doesn't. And this leads us into the ethics of smart drugs, regardless of whether they can or cannot increase our intelligence. perennial challenges of new technologies is their potential to exacerbate social divides between people who can afford them and as a consequence get the benefits from them and those who cannot. Over time, technologies tend to trickle down through society, which is how so many people are able to afford cars these days or own a cell phone. Yet it's too easy to assume that technology trickle-down is a given, and to ignore some of the more egregious ways in which innovations can line the pockets of the rich at the expense of the poor, a theme we'll come back to with the movie Elysium in Chapter 6. The relationship here between technology innovation and social disparity is complex, especially when enterprising entrepreneurs work out how to open new markets by slashing the cost of access to new tech. Yet it's hard to avoid the reality that some technologies make it easier for the wealthy to succeed in life, and as a result, put poorer people at a disadvantage. And perhaps nowhere is this more apparent than when wealthy individuals have access to technologies that address their deficiencies or enhance their capabilities, in the process creating a positive feedback loop that further divides the rich and the poor. Limitless' Eddy provides an interesting case here. When we first meet him, he's a failure. Compared to those around him, his soon-to-be ex-girlfriend in particular, he's not performing particularly well. In fact, it's fair to say that he has an ability and a lifestyle deficit. We're left in no doubt that Eddie's lack of ability puts him at a disadvantage compared to others. And while we don't know whether this is due to his personal choices or the cards he was dealt with, let's assume for the sake of argument that this deficit is not his fault. If this is the case, does he have the right to do something about it? If Eddie's lack of success was due to a clearly diagnosed disease or disability, I suspect that the consensus would be yes. As a society, we've developed a pretty strong foundation of medical ethics around doing no harm, doing good, not being coerced into decisions, and spreading the burdens and benefits of treatments across all members of society. As long as a course of action didn't lead to unacceptable harm, it would be easy to argue that Eddie should have access to treatments that would address what he's lacking. Following this argument, if NZT simply brought Eddie up to par with those around him, its use would probably be seen as okay by most people. But let's make this a little bit more complicated. What if NZT did indeed enable Eddie to be an ordinary, functional member of the human race, but he could only get it illicitly? Would we still be alright with this? It wouldn't surprise me if in this case a substantial part of the collective response was why not legalise it, or at the very least ensure that anyone who wants to take advantage of the drug could get hold of it reasonably easily without facing the risk of imprisonment. Imagine next, a low-potency version of NZT that was legal and was marketed as a dietary supplement. I suspect that most people would think that this was all right, in part because there would be a choice of whether to take it or not. And if the substance addressed a minor deficit or displayed marginal benefits, there would be little pressure to use it. As a result, its use would probably slip quite comfortably into our sense of ethically appropriate behaviour. So far, so good. In this mildly enhanced Eddie hypothetical, there don't seem to be glaring ethical issues. But what if we now go back to the NZT that's portrayed in the movie, a cognitive enhancer that provides the user with immediate benefits over those around them? This moves us from thinking of the substance as a way of correcting a deficit to one that confers a substantial advantage. And this is where medical ethics begin to run out of steam, but they still have some relevance, especially the medical ethic of justice. Imagine that in the movie, NZT was as widely and readily available as a genetic over-the-counter drug like Tylenol. Would this be okay? There are Obviously questions here around how appropriate it would be for everyone to be dependent on a mind-enhancing substance. But just on the basis of social justice, this scenario feels not so bad. Apart from the poorest of the poor, most people would be able to afford to pop a pill to increase their smarts if they wanted to. Because of this, the benefits and the risks of NZT would most likely end up being shared across society. This isn't too different from where we find ourselves with caffeine, apart from the obvious difference that a shot of espresso doesn't quite have the ability to transform a struggling writer into a genius, and believe me, I know. Caffeine is a socially normalised drug that has mild benefits in terms of wakefulness and concentration. It's also a substance that people feel they can opt out of using without feeling that this leaves them at a social or competitive disadvantage. Whether something as powerful as NZT could be socialised in the same way is far from certain. It would depend a lot on the perceived and real benefits and risks. But that said, it is possible to imagine a pathway forward here for a cognition-enhancing substance to become socialised if it was affordable and widely available. How much would this change, though, if NZT was an expensive proprietary drug? Still legal and still accessible, but in this case only available through exclusive clinics and affordable to the super rich. This is a more plausible scenario, as any company making it would have to recoup their development costs. And as we know from current drug development, this can easily run into the billions of dollars. This scenario takes us into uneasy ethical territory, and again it's the ethic of justice that comes into play. This is a scenario where the benefits and the burdens of NZT would not be equitably shared across society. Rather, the rich would end up having access to a technology that gave them a vast advantage over the poor, or even the middle class. Using the technology, they would be able to make even more money, wield even more power, create even more exclusive technologies, and further distance themselves from the rest of society. This, of course, is the scenario that plays out in Limitless, but without the social commentary. The power players here are those who are on NZT or have benefited from it. These are the people who end up holding the reins of economic and political power, all because they have exclusive access to a mind-enhancing substance. I must confess that this is not a scenario that I'm comfortable with, and it's not one that I believe can be avoided through market-driven innovation alone. Without appropriate checks and balances in place, the free market simply provides a mechanism that prioritizes overall wealth creation over just and equitable wealth creation. Put simply, free market economies can thrive on social inequity and injustice as long as people are willing to buy and sell goods while asking few questions. And you can bet your bottom dollar that there would be a market for a smart drug that massively increased a wealthy individual's chances of success. What is needed in a scenario like this is a system of checks and balances that helps steer market forces towards social good. Here, approaching how we ensure the benefits of new technologies while avoiding unpleasant downsides is not about stymieing technologies that threaten us, far from it. But it does involve deciding what's important and having the foresight and commitment to ensuring that technology innovation supports what we believe is good and worthy and avoids what we believe is not. In the language of medical ethics, we probably want to work on innovation pathways that demonstrate the idea of doing no harm, that enable us to do good, that support autonomy, and that are just. To start with, though, we need to work out what we believe is important to us as a society. And that includes grappling with how we think about intelligence. As a species, we're obsessed with intelligence. It's what gives us our evolutionary edge, and it's what has led to our dominance as homo sapiens. Our intelligence is what many of us depend on in our personal and professional lives. And when it comes to artificial forms of intelligence, it's something that some people worry will end up destroying us. But how we think about intelligence is remarkably coloured by our sense of our own importance, and this in turn affects how we think about technologies that are designed to enhance it, including smart drugs. As a species, we've dominated our evolutionary niche, and we've done pretty well at expanding the boundaries of this niche, pushing other species out of the way as we go. As we've evolved, we've done amazingly well at learning how to use the natural resources around us to our advantage. We've adroitly developed the ability to imagine futures beyond the present we inhabit. And we've become rather adept in crafting our own internal worlds of feelings, beliefs, desires, aspirations and identities. We are, in our own eyes, exceptional. This assumption of exceptionality, though, is an evolutionary illusion. We are perfectly adapted to the evolutionary niche we inhabit, but this doesn't make us superior to any other organism that's happily succeeding in its own niche. And yet, despite our self-aggrandizement, we are an amazing species. Our ability to individually and collectively imagine futures that are different from the present and to make these futures a reality is truly astounding. This doesn't make us superior to other organisms, but it does make us interesting. And at the root of what makes us an interesting species is what we collectively think of as intelligence. This is where things begin to get a little gnarly, though, because while most people would agree that human intelligence is important, there's not so much agreement on what intelligence is exactly. And this becomes relevant as we begin to develop technologies that either claim to enhance intelligence or to replicate it. Understanding the nature of intelligence is, perhaps not surprisingly, something that people have been grappling with for a long time. For millennia, we've tried to metaphorically pull ourselves up by our bootstraps by using our intelligence to better understand that self-same intelligence. Each generation of thinkers and scholars has had its own ideas of what intelligence is and where its value lies, and the current one is no different. Although, naturally, being the most intelligent generation so far, we're pretty sure we're honing in on the right ideas this time. Broad definitions of intelligence tend to focus on our combined abilities to remember, reason, imagine, learn, build stuff, and use knowledge and materials to actively alter the world we live in. Together these tap into traits that differentiate us as a species from others and in this respect intelligence becomes a convenient shorthand for that which makes us different. Plenty of scholars have tried to pin things down more precisely though. One school of thought that's arisen over the past 100 years is that there's an innate characteristic of general intelligence that makes us different, a single measure or quotient of intelligence that captures all of humanity's specialness. This was first suggested by Charles Spearman in 1904 and is the basis of generalized measures of intelligence such as the g-factor and intelligence quotient or IQ. But these remain controversial measures of intelligence. In contrast, psychologist Howard Gardner proposed the idea that there are multiple types of intelligence representing different aspects of human abilities and differentness. These include musical intelligence, visual or spatial intelligence, verbal intelligence, logical intelligence, and a whole lot more, including an existential intelligence that begins to tap into aspects of belief and spirituality. In Limitless, we're introduced to an understanding of intelligence that lies somewhere between Spearman's general intelligence and Gardner's multiple types of intelligence. What gives Enhanced Eddie his competitive edge is his ability to remember, recall, and use information faster and better when on NZT. It's this combination of memory, recall, speed, and utilization that boosts Eddie's performance within the movie and transforms him from a struggling writer to a smart and successful author, businessman, and politician. And we're led to believe that this performance boost is synonymous with an intelligence boost. Yet this is a restrictively narrow view of intelligence, and one that leads to a rather monochromatic perspective of success, especially when it comes to technological innovation. It suggests that the most relevant aspects of intelligence are memory, speed of thought, and reasoning ability, and that what establishes their importance is the degree to which they help us win. In Limitless, Eddie is transformed from a loser to a winner by NZT. In the Silicon Valley nootropic culture, taking the right stacks is seen as the route to winning as an entrepreneur and in business. Students take prescription drugs to win in their courses. Academics pop pills to win at grant applications and to win at getting their papers published. And I have to assume that corporate executives self-medicate on occasions to win in business. In other words, smart drugs are not about intelligence – but about selectively enhancing capabilities that provide a perceived performance advantage in a given situation. It's just that we've collectively fallen into the habit of thinking about a small set of attributes as defining intelligence and assuming that they are essential to winning in life. It's all very survival at the fittest. It also creates a bit of a problem. As soon as we make the mental leap of assuming better memory and enhanced reasoning make us more likely to win at what we do, we become the victims of a cognitive delusion, and this has a profound impact on how we think about the development and use of smart drugs. If, as it's assumed in Limitless, a single pill can increase someone's chances of winning at whatever they're doing, we have to grapple with who gets access to this wonder pill and what our collective norms and rules are for responsible use. This becomes challenging if the idea of someone else having a general advantage over you because of the meds they're on becomes a serious threat to your ability to succeed or being seen as worthy. But if this pill only enhances someone's chances of winning under specific circumstances, the threat it poses takes on a very different feel. If you believe that there are multiple ways of understanding and thinking about intelligence and that there are multiple combinations of skills needed for success then taking the wrong smart pill for the wrong purpose could be disastrous. It'd be like taking a tab of LSD to help wrap up a grant proposal, probably entertaining for the reviewers, but not in the way you intended. On the other hand, taking the right smart pill for the right occasion could be rather useful, especially when this notion of winning leads to social good. This might include effective patient treatment, for instance, or problem-solving around natural disasters. In other words, having a clear sense of what intelligence is and what intelligence enhancement means is critical to the socially responsible development and use of smart drugs in intelligence related technologies more broadly. If you believe that better memory and reason are the most important factors in winning or in determining someone's worth, then drugs that substantially enhance them become something to be carefully managed within society. This way of thinking leads to smart drugs being framed as a potentially divisive technology that threatens to further prize open the divide between those who have access to the technology and those who do not. If we accept, on the other hand, that personal worth is not dependent on these two factors, but instead a complex combination of ways you enhance the lives of others, and that winning is about more than fame, fortune, and being clever, then smart drugs potentially become an asset and one to be nurtured. In setting out to navigate this ethical landscape, so much depends on how we think of intelligence and this notion of winning. Sadly, we live in a society that values a rather narrow definition of intelligence, which, intentionally or not, leaves the impression that personal worth is linked to how smart you are. This is seen in our education system and the pressure that parents feel to do everything possible to increase their child's IQ. It's also seen in how we reward people and who we assign value to within society. Yet there's little evidence that intelligence, when defined in this rather narrow way, leads to attributes like empathy, humility, kindness and civility, all of which are profoundly important within a healthy society. On the contrary, intelligence as portrayed in Limitless and as is often perceived in real life, has no inherent moral compass – Being smart doesn't make you good. That said, I can imagine a future where smart drugs are a powerful technology for benefiting lives as part of a suite of technologies that we use to build a better future. But to get there, we're first going to have to recalibrate how we think about intelligence and how it relates to what is socially useful and beneficial. Such a recalibration is important for technologies that alter and enhance how our minds work. But it's also critically important to how we think about and develop artificial intelligences, or hybrid human-machine intelligences, because if we start off with a warped perspective of intelligence and success, you can guarantee that the intelligence-enhancing technologies we develop and the pathways we develop them along will be equally warped. There's a twist to this tale, though. While NZT may not make Eddie better than his peers, it certainly gives him what it takes to succeed in the life that he's chosen. Whether you consider the drug to be intelligence-enhancing or performance-enhancing, Eddie gets ahead because he has access to it. And while the fictional pharmacology of NZT helps explain what he achieved once he started using it, there's a subtle but nevertheless important subplot to Limitless, which is that in order to succeed you need to be privileged enough to have access to the smart drug in the first place. This, in turn, takes us to the challenge of what happens when only a privileged few have access to a powerful technology and to our next movie, Elysium. The Moviegoer's Guide to the Future is based on the book Films from the Future, The Technology and Morality of Sci-Fi Movies and is read by the author Andrew Maynard.